Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello, this is Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. We're all wondering about natural treatments, supplements, vitamins. Uh, what do we do? There's so many on the grocery shelves. There's so many recommendations. There's so many uh, spin reports that question them. I mean, what do we do? Uh, what do we take to help our health? Well, with us today, we have somebody who might help us in this. We have Dr. Stephen Blake. He is a faculty nutritional biochemist at the Hawaii Pacific Neuroscience Center. He designed the Hawaii Dimension Prevention Trial, a clinical study at Hawaii's Alzheimer's Disease Center. He was personally involved in conducting this clinical trial using dietary changes with nutrients found in his targeted nutritional supplement, Brain and Body Food. He's the author of several books, including 2008 McGraw-Hill College textbook, Vitamins and Minerals Demystified, is also the author of How Not to Get a Heart Attack, Arthritis Relief, A Nutritional Approach to Alzheimer's Disease, and Understanding Fats and Oils. He also authored The Diet Doctor, which is software for analyzing dietary nutrition. This software allows for detailed analysis of your dietary fats and many other nutrients. He's also maintained one of the world's largest databases on plant-used, medicinally-cited the just medicinally called the herb doctor. Welcome, Dr. Blake. Thank you, Susan, for having me here today. Okay. Well, you've got so much to share, so um, let's get started. So when you did the, the dementia prevention study in Hawaii, uh, what did you learn? What we learned is that diet is very powerful in helping our memory and our thinking abilities. We learned that, well, let me tell you a little bit of a story. Um, one lady came to us, and she was in her 60s, and she had was diagnosed with dementia, actually Alzheimer's disease, and she in a wheelchair with her daughter, and she needed some help. And so what we did is we asked her what she ate. Well, she ate at fast food restaurants three times a day. She wasn't getting the nutrition that her brain needed, and she was getting all kinds of things her brain didn't need. So over the months, month by month, we talked to her, and her daughter cooked for her, so she was willing to change her diet. As time went on, she got brighter in her mind, and she went from a wheelchair to a walker. Then she got brighter in her mind, and she went from a walker to a cane. She got brighter in her mind, and she left the cane in the closet, and she was able to come a year later to a dedication at our clinic, walk up to the podium, and talk about what happened. This lady is now reading medical studies. So it can be that a brain can perk up, and nutrition was the real key. She changed her diet, she took some supplements, and it made a huge difference. Are you saying that diet can reverse dementia? Well, that's what we found in our trial. Actually, it was the supplements that were most powerful. When we, when we, an easy test of dementia is to look at the mini mental state exam. And it's a simple test that is widely used in studies where from 25 to 30 is kind of normal. And from 20 to 25 is pre-dementia or mild cognitive impairment. Well, once you get below 20, you're starting to get into dementia a little bit. So we started the people in our trial at 19. And at the end of the trial, they were at 29 out of 30. So almost normal. So we did find that it is possible. And, of course, we need a much larger study to verify this. I wish there were funds available to do these studies, this study we did was completely voluntary. I volunteered two years of my time, and the clinic volunteered all its rooms. All the doctors, neuropsychologists, all donated their time. I wish we had the pharmaceutical industry to fund it all. We could do a really big study. Well, how many uh, participants were in your study? 
It was designed with 25 in the supplement group, 25 in the diet group, and 25 in the control group. We did not completely fill all the groups, but we still got results that were pretty stunning. Were there any differences between the diet group and the supplements group? Well, yes, there were. The thing about changing your diet is that unless it's an in-residence clinical trial, people don't often really change their diet. So what happened was the people who were supposed to change their diet, and we had four different things that they were supposed to change in their diet. And probably the most important one is to avoid vascular dementia. That's where the arteries in the brain get clogged up, both big and small, and sometimes little parts of the brain can die. And these are like little tiny strokes that can happen all over the brain. And this is directly related, of course, to how much clogging of the arteries there is, which is related to how much saturated fat is in the diet. So especially the three saturated fatty acids, lauric myristic and palmitic acid. So we asked people in the study to get their saturated fats under 7% of their calories, which now the American Heart Association is actually calling for under six these days. But they couldn't really do it. They uh, found themselves um, not complying very well with the saturated fat one. That was, that was tough for them. The other changes that we made were, if, when you look at Alzheimer's disease, one of the signature features is these amyloid plaques that are like little clumps of irregular protein between nerve cells in the brain. These build up in Alzheimer's disease, and certain malformed program proteins called advanced glycation end products can get stuck in there and they shower the brain with almost radiation like free radical damage 50 times as much as a normal protein so one of our interventions was to have people use different cooking methods to avoid broiling and frying and barbecuing of any meats or cheese or fish. Cheese actually has them form naturally in there. So hard cheeses were out and broiled hard-fried and barbecued meats and fish and chicken were out in the trial, and we had some problem with compliance there, too, especially around July 4th. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what he's saying, audience, is these advanced glycation end products, um, this is uh, when you get a very high sugar uh, connecting with a fat that these things tend to form, and you're saying that that is very high risk for mini strokes and vas- vascular dementia? Yes, it does. It does damage the brain. Um, it's the sugars reacting with proteins mostly. There's also uh, sugars can react with fats as well, uh, causing lipotoxins. With dementia, both in Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, the problem is that the brain cells die off. In fact, in advanced Alzheimer's disease, the brain can have shrunk to half of its size because half of the brain cells, these millions and millions of brain cells, have died off. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So the uh, advanced glycation end product is one way to avoid that. And, of course, the other cooking changes we made were to add berries to the diet either blueberries or strawberries or red grapes, a cup every day. In the nurse's health study, it was found that they delayed dementia by an average of two years, just that one intervention. And we used, you know, 12 supplements and and four food changes. So the berries were easy and people did that. And that's something anyone in the audience can do is eat a cup of berries a day. doesn't matter too much which berries you eat. They are all very helpful to protect the brain. They have these things in them called proanthocyanidins that go up into the brain, get lodged into memory areas, and protect the brain from both oxidation and inflammation, which means your brain cells don't die off and you stay as smart as you are. Yeah, the audience, oxidation, stress, and inflammation are some of the main culprits leading us down the disease path. But I'd also like to warn that a strawberries is on the highest list of the dirty dozen, mean it's mostly, it's the most contaminated by insecticides. So make sure you get organic strawberries and probably the others without spray as well. Oh, absolutely. Great point, Susan. The, um, yeah, the dirty doesn't include all the berries, um, blueberries too. And organic berries are a good idea. Uh, when we talk about Parkinson's disease, I'll mention pesticides a little bit more. Uh, 
So the uh, the last dietary change we made was to add nuts and seeds, uh, one ounce of ground up walnuts and one ounce of ground up sunflower seeds to supply natural vitamin E to the body because vitamin E lodges into the membrane of every brain cell. Okay, so Steve, what you, I hear you say to help with prevention and possibly reversal of Alzheimer's and dementia are nuts and seeds organic berries, and you said uh, low-saturated fat. Does that include coconut oils and MCT, medium-chain triglycerides? If the medium-chain triglycerides contain lauric myristic and palmitic acid, which in coconut oil makes up 65% of the content of the oil, then yes, those would be restricted. And in our Hawaii dementia prevention trial, we did advise people, the dietitians advised people not to eat any coconut oil or coconut milk, which one-fifth of a can of coconut milk also maxes out your saturated fats in a day. Well, how does this differ from other people who reported that they actually reversed Alzheimer's with coconut oil? Well, if you're talking about the preemie doctor who had a husband who was not diagnosed with Alzheimer's but had trouble drawing clocks and then miraculously could draw a clock again, um, just the one person, um, that wasn't too convincing to anyone. And uh, the information behind saturated fats and vascular dementia is vast. The research is very good. And there's very little doubt that there's a problem there with too much saturated fat. So I would recommend that for health's sake, we want to keep it below 7% of calories, uh, saturated fat, which would equate to, if you ate nothing else, two tablespoons of coconut oil. But I'm not recommending that people take coconut oil because it's lacking in any antioxidants to protect the brain, whereas other, other fats and oils tend to have vitamin E in them, but coconut oil does not. Uh, and also the saturated fats, and basically it's just calories without nutrition. Now, some of the shortest chain fatty acids in the MCTs or coconut oil can fuel the brain, and that's fine, but the brain prefers glucose for fuel anyway and will do everything it can to get glucose, which is normally available by breaking down glycogen or gluconeogenesis. So what kinds of oils would you recommend us to use? Well, in my book, uh, Understanding Dietary Fats, I don't recommend oils at all. Uh, I recommend that people get their dietary oils from walnuts and other nuts and seeds and from olives and avocados and whole intact plant foods rather than trying to get them from oils because when you extract oils, they become rancid and contaminated and they lose a lot of their vitamin E, all of their fiber and a lot of their minerals and basically everything good is taken out and calories are left. So that's what an oil is. Interesting. And what about sugar? (laughs) Well, I didn't really focus on sugar in my uh, trial with Alzheimer's disease, um, but I, I think the nutrients are pretty important. Could I talk about those for a minute? Yes, I was going to ask that next. Good, because those Alzheimer's plaques form, the way they form is genes in the brain cell will make this amyloid precursor protein, and then that is cleaved by these enzymes, which are also made by genes in the brain. And then if you have enough folate, which is a B vitamin, and vitamin B12, then you're able to actually epigenetically suppress those genes. So they quiet down. They don't make the enzymes that create the amyloid plaque. This is something that the drug companies would love to have a drug to do. And in our clinic, we're now testing a drug to do that. But the side effects have always been too extreme for a a drug. And yet we have these safe, natural B vitamins that are able to do the same job to suppress the production of amyloid plaques. So that's folate, vitamin B12. They result in a production in the body of SAMe. There's a long name for that, S-adenosylmethionine. The SAMe is able to do this methylation to quench the genes and keep the amyloid plaques from forming. That's one good way to keep Alzheimer's disease away, just to get your basic nutrition. Now, in our trial, people were also taking SAMe as well as folate and vitamin B12, just to be on the safe side. 
And so when you compared the diet uh, leg of the study versus the nutritional versus the control, how did the three groups fare? The diet group did not degenerate, which is normal. Normally, people with mild cognitive impairment get a little bit worse each year. The diet group was able to keep its gains and not degenerate, which is what we wanted in the trial. That was our goal, whereas a supplement group was able to actually reverse their problems and get better memory and better thinking abilities. So the other part of the supplements we used were powerful antioxidants such as vitamin C and a very special form of vitamin E, which contains gamma-tocopherol. And vitamin E, I could definitely talk the whole show on vitamin E, but I won't. The forms that you see in stores are completely wrong for at least three reasons. One is they don't contain all the forms of vitamin E, just the alpha-tocopherol form. And the gamma and the other forms are much more powerful to protect the brain, and they're found more in food. Walnuts are a great source, for instance, and pecans. So Another problem to... is, is that okay, they're synthetic. Ahead. The synthetic alpha-tocopherol is only one-eighth real alpha-tocopherol, and seven-eighths of it are not real. But the body doesn't know that these synthetic things aren't real alpha-tocopherol, so they send them up to the brain cell to protect it. But it's like a security guard with a no gun. He can't protect the cells. So the alpha-tocopherol, the synthetic form, is actually found to be more harmful than good, and I would never recommend it. The sad part is that very much the majority of supplements contain this fake form of vitamin E. How can we tell if the supplements we're taking contain the fake form of vitamin E? I think that it's almost universal that it does. It's very, very hard. Now, during our trial at Hawaii Pacific Neuroscience, many people couldn't enter the trial for one reason or another. We had all these inclusion and exclusion requirements, but they wanted to take the supplement. So we developed the brain and body food, which is a multivitamin supplement that is containing most of the things in our trial, and plus it contains all the essential vitamins and minerals, some of which we've been talking about, and these antioxidants in large quantities that we've been talking about. So we were able to give those, and the lady I talked about who did so much better was taking the brain and body food, and I'm sure that helped her nutrition along with the diet. I I think we need both, good diet and a little boost. Now, I put in the real the real vitamin E in the brain and body food. But when I look on the shelf in health food stores or box stores, I don't find real vitamin E hardly ever. I I would say that I've never been able to confirm real vitamin E. It's extremely hard to find. Why? Because it's expensive. And what other vitamins should we look at very closely in the store? Well, um, we have to protect our brains and the rest of our bodies, antioxidant enzymes that detoxify these things that kill off our brain cells. But they require that we have copper, zinc, manganese, and selenium. And many people don't get all of these every day. So it's a good idea to make sure you get all your nutritional minerals every day. And of course, we put those in the trial supplements and in the brain and body food for people who couldn't be in the trial. What about folic acid versus folate? I understand uh, a high percent of us, percentage of us without the MTHFR gene uh, cannot metabolize it properly, and, that, and with folic acid left in our body, we have a higher risk factor for cancer, so we need the, what kind of folate versus folic acid? Wow, you're very well informed, Susan. That's absolutely correct. Folic acid is a synthetic form of folate. Folate's the real vitamin E. B that's found, it's one of the eight B vitamins that's found in food and in the human body. Folic acid can be turned into folate if we have the right enzymes in our bodies, but only a certain amount can be done. High amounts of folate, which is found in fortified grains and in some breakfast cereals, and then you take a supplement with folic acid in the wrong form, not the real folate, and you can get over a 1,000 micrograms per day and start raising your risk of cancer. So I don't recommend folic acid, and in fact, I use the real folate in my supplement brain and body food for that very reason. Good point. 
And one of our speakers said that a lot, some of the vitamin B12 that's on the market actually lowers your levels of B12. I have not seen any studies of that. Even cyanocobalamin, which is the non-preferred form, has been found to restore levels of vitamin B12. The best form would be methylcobalamin, and that is, of course, what we used in the trial and I use in, in the brain and body food. And what doses of these various vitamins, I mean, for brain protection, you know, and protection of major diseases, what doses and vitamins would you recommend? Well, Susan, it's a bit of a complex subject. As you know, I wrote a college textbook for McGraw-Hill on vitamins and minerals, and the forms of the various vitamins and the potencies are all something that needs to be very carefully done. For vitamin C, for the trial, we put in 800 milligrams per day, and in my brain and body food, I upped that to 1,200 milligrams per day, split over, you know, after three meals. Um, the vitamin E, we use 400 milligrams uh, of that, and in, in fact, in my brain and body food, with all the different tocopherol, it's almost 800 um, but normally, you, you, you look at the alpha to get the 400, and then the rest of them make up almost the other 400. It varies a little batch by batch. By the way, we did use coenzyme Q10 as a supplement in our trial, and that's a fat-soluble antioxidant that also boosts brain energy. Very safe, and we did use some of that. We used 200 milligrams per day in our study. Okay. Um, all right. So are you saying that we can actually reverse Alzheimer's or are you just talking about the people with mild cognitive impairment whose MS, whose mini mental status exam hovers around 19? Well, that, that is true. Once the brain has shrunk beyond a certain point, it's very, very difficult to bring it back. And so it would be best for all of us listening to go ahead and take proactive steps to eat healthier food and to perhaps think about taking supplements that would keep us from degenerating into the state of Alzheimer's disease. Once the Alzheimer's plaques are fully formed, there's no way that I know of to get rid of them. Uh, vascular dementia, however, seems to reverse quite well, and I think that's a large part of our success was with protection against vascular dementia, which is very much like protection against strokes because they are just tiny strokes. It's a shame because uh, Margaret Thatcher had um, uh, vascular dementia, and it's a shame nobody could help her. I mean, here she's a leader of a world country. It is a shame that medical doctors don't study nutrition and they don't um, really know about nutrition. So they're not in a position, they don't read the nutrition journals. You know, they're busy reading the drug journals. So we're not able to get the, the best nutrition advice to people who need it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, let's see. So... Um, for uh, risk of a stroke and vascular dementia, what are your recommendations? Oh, there's some great things about stroke. Um, first, I'll talk about some things you can add to your diet so you don't have to think about dropping things from your diet, which is so much harder. So more fruits, more vegetables, more whole plants can reduce your risk of stroke by 32 to 65 percent. Really a lot more fiber can reduce your risk of stroke 65%. So oatmeal, apples, any whole grains, uh, you can have non-gluten ones if you prefer those. Uh, any fruits, any vegetables, nuts and seeds, beans are great sources of fiber. So all of those things can build up to 65% less in clinical trials. Another problem is, of course, high blood pressure has a lot to do with stroke and vascular dementia risk. So Changing from white rice to brown rice made a huge difference in a huge study in China. 63% less risk of stroke for those who switched from white rice to brown rice. That's something anyone can do. And surprisingly, soy products topped the list with an 80% reduction in risk in another huge study in China. Hundreds of thousands of people. The ones who ate more than one serving a day and even soy Milk counts as a serving of soy because it contains the genistein and diazdine that are the anti-inflammatory components of it. Seems to greatly reduce risk. 
We're coming Another to a break. Thing that's, We're coming that's, to a break now. Me? So, uh, Doc, Dr. Blake, myself, and the rooster will be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandrabali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health, where I have guests. Dr. Stephen Blake and his roosters. And if we're lucky, his pigs might uh, join the foray. Uh, so he lives on a real organic farm out there. So I hope you can feel the country. So we were talking about, you know, uh, vascular dementia. And so this is actually something you can reverse? Yes. Vascular dementia is something that you can reverse, uh, unlike Alzheimer's disease where you can't get rid of the amyloid plaque. With vascular dementia, you can do it. For instance, let me tell you about one lady who came into the clinic. She's 80 years old, a hot dresser, a wonderful lady. She had had a fairly severe stroke but was okay and didn't want another one. And she didn't want to take any drugs. So her cholesterol was 374, off the chart. Wow. And over six months with dietary alterations, she got it down to 212. And then over another six months, she got it down to 144. I'll tell you, when that 144 came in, every neurologist in the clinic had to come look at the paper because she did that with no statins, just with dietary changes. Isn't that too low? Isn't 144 way too low for cholesterol? No, 144 is, I would call, perfect for cholesterol. There is not such a thing as too low cholesterol since we make it in our bodies, in every cell, mostly in the liver, but every cell makes cholesterol. We need a little bit to stiffen our cell membranes and a little bit to make hormones, but this is something the human body makes. The human body makes saturated fat, and the human body makes cholesterol. And actually, if you look at primates, they all have around 100 to 125 as their total cholesterol. And free-living natives in South America also have cholesterol levels there quite low. So if you can get it under 150 with diet, then that's fabulous. And I would say that uh, now, a couple years later, with her cholesterol continuing to be low, her arteries have opened up. Now, once the plaque is gone from the arteries, you can't have an ischemic stroke because in order to have one, you need first plaque, and then it has to break off and clog the artery to the brain to kill off part of the brain. So it's wonderful when you no longer have that possibility. Of course, you no longer can have an ischemic heart attack either. What about when your carotid arteries get all clogged up? 
Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Uh, there are, are sometimes in my lectures I use actual imaging of arteries that were all clogged up, and then over the course of a year or two of a plant-based, low-fat diet, they become unclogged. And there's plenty of evidence of this happening. It does require a good diet to do that. Uh, I would like to just point out that very different experts have different opinions. Uh, uh, it seems that the low-fat diet that we had in the 80s or whenever, we tended to substitute a lot of uh, sugars and um, corn syrup, etc., and that put us down a wrong path. So we have to be careful. And um, so it's different. Sure, Susan, that's a really good point. Is in studies, when they look at reducing saturated fat, the best studies look at what they're changed to. If they're changed to, as you say, sugars and white flour products, that's not a good substitution because the excess calories will be turned into saturated fat, palmitic acid, by our bodies, and we're back in the same position. So you're basically recommending we don't go wild on sugars. So we have to be uh, prudent with uh, intake of sugars. Well, I think that when you're talking about whole fruit, I think you should go wild with delicious, sweet, whole fruit because it the sugar absorbs slowly and the antioxidants in the fruit are so protective to our arteries in our brain and everywhere else. And uh, another thing about high saturated fat, it, it doesn't just damage the arteries, you know, and create clogging. I've been reading some interesting studies on diabetes. I'm just writing a book on it now. Saturated fat raises blood sugar and makes insulin ineffective so that insulin no longer can drive the sugar from the arteries into those cells where it belongs. And this is something that is very closely related to our saturated fat intake. So another reason why we should avoid fatty meats and cheeses and even coconut oil. Wow. Okay. Um, let's see. So what do we do to reduce our risk for stroke? What do our di- diet, what should our diets include? Well, it, by including more fiber, that would be fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, um, and, um, and avoiding, you know, white rice, which turns right to sugar, just like white flour does. And well, brown, sugar, brown rice does eventually, too. Brown rice does not increase blood sugars because it releases slowly. So you get a little bit of blood sugar when you first eat it, and then a little while later after that's burned up, then you get a little more. And over the course of several hours, the brown rice slowly releases its carbohydrates are slowly broken down in our intestine and absorbed into the blood. With If you ate just brown rice, you would see, in fact, there is a, a diet, the Swank diet, where they just used rice to cure diabetes. And what they found was that the blood sugar is normalized and insulin isn't really needed because it's beans are that way even more. They just slowly absorb the carbohydrates into the bloodstream as needed. And so your body doesn't have to do a lot of regulating. And what do you think of ketosis? <laughs> ketosis is a process whereby someone is um, fasting and after Several days, uh, perhaps a week, their glycogen stores are depleted in their muscles and their liver and their brain. Glycogen is a storage form of blood sugar. When blood sugar is depleted that far, then your brain suffers the most and your heart suffers terribly. And, of course, your kidneys are damaged. Ketosis is to be avoided in diabetics, and doctors go to great lengths to avoid ketosis. Uh, and it's really not... Uh, something that can happen on a normal diet. There is a ketogenic diet for epileptic children who have not responded to at least three other drug therapies. It's, it's that dangerous. Uh, but compliance is low because the kids have to eat basically pure fat, just, you know, butter and uh, all kinds of fat. It's very difficult to actually produce ketosis. But some experts say that the brain likes ketones as a fuel. You say it likes glucose. Well, I'm not the only one. Every physiologist in the world would say that the brain prefers glucose as a fuel. And uh, I would have to agree with with the consensus of all the scientists in the world. Uh, Ketones can be used as a fuel by some damaged brain cells. 
And so it can perk up the brain a little bit to get some of those short-chain fatty acids. I would never pollute those short-chain fatty acids with anything over 10 carbons in length, uh, which is what happens with most MCI and coconut oil. But still, that's not a real solution because you're not blocking oxidation and the death of cells. You're just feeding them in a drug-like manner to keep them a little brighter. Now, doctors at our clinic use donopezil as a drug to keep the brain a little bit brighter, but yet over time, the brain still degenerates. Neurodegeneration continues with both of those drug-like therapies. And I want something that's safe and stops degeneration. So that's why I don't like the ketogenic therapy for the brain so much. And what do you think of butter or eating meats? Well, uh, it, butter is very high in um, saturated fat. It also, dairy products tend to accumulate, and this is true for meat fat as well, the organochlorine pesticides that have been used historically throughout the world, they're no longer used, but they're everywhere, and they bioaccumulate in butter and cheese and meat fat and chicken fat and even in fish. Yeah, These organochlorine pesticides are largely responsible. Whether it's grass-fed beef or it's organic beef doesn't matter. I have studies on organic beef showing that these organochlorine pesticides are just as high, and those tend to accumulate in the brain, specifically in the dopamine-producing region of the brain, the substantia nigra, and kill off those cells, and that's one of the main culprits in Parkinson's disease. Well, Dr. Campbell has mentioned that we get 80%, or one of our speakers has mentioned we get 80% of our pesticides from the meat we eat. It's difficult to say because uh, it, it really depends. And some pesticides bioaccumulate and some do not. Uh, some, such as the organophosphates, do attack the nervous system and should probably be avoided. Uh, malathion would be an example of that one, or parathion. Well, what about uh, others, glyphosate? Like the soy, and the, the, the soy and corn in the U.S. are about 90% GMO, and so the glyphosate uh, would be a problem. So would you recommend we take soy-laden glyphosate? I always recommend organic soy products, which are very easy to find, and uh, so that avoids both the genetic modification, which is unproven as to safety, and also avoids glyphosate and other pesticides as well. So that's a simple solution so that we can eat our beans, which are very necessary and, and healthful component of a diet, and yet we don't want the pesticides with the beans. So you've also done some work with migraines and with nutrition, uh, such as ginger powder and various recommendations. Can you talk a little about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, it is interesting that when the migraine pain hits, doctors give patients a drug called sumatriptan, which is very powerful painkiller, and it helps people with their migraines. No doubt, it reduces the migraines dramatically. Well, a recent study was done, and they used ginger powder, about a quarter teaspoon of ginger powder instead of the sumatriptan, and it worked just as well to reduce pain. It was really quite uh, an effect where about half the people lost all of their pain and the rest of the people had a great reduction in pain, just like sumatriptan. However, sumatriptan has side effects ranging from mild all the way to dead. So because <laughs> ginger has only really good side effects, it seems like a nice choice. And because it's by pain, patients could try the ginger, if it doesn't kill their headache pain, they always have the sumatriptan to back it up. But if it does, then they have a safer alternative. So that's one nice thing that we have. And I asked our migraine specialist neurologist about ginger, and he said, I haven't heard of it. Well, I well, guess if there aren't, aren't pharmaceutical reps taking them to lunch to brag about ginger. Well, I mean, if you get a migraine at early stage, uh, wouldn't coffee or something that opens up the constricted blood vessels help? Coffee does tend to constrict blood vessels a little bit. Oh. Um, oh. I think the best way to deal with migraines, and I have a book on the subject called Mastering Migraines, uh, would be to look at your triggers. And the commonest triggers are skipped meals and lack of rest. 
So if you keep your nutrition constant throughout the day, that really helps keep the migraine frequency down. Also, wine, cheese, caffeine are all possible triggers. As you mentioned, sometimes caffeine can help in the early stages, but they can, it can hurt in the later stages of a migraine. Correct. So so does, caffeine just can the, be both helpful or harmful. Yeah, because the vessels at one point are open and other close, you got to get coffee when the vessels are open. Uh, otherwise, it exacerbates the condition when the vessels are constricted. Okay. Exactly. And out, outside of avoiding your triggers, other things people can do is magnesium, a normal, necessary mineral, really helps reduce migraine frequency and pain. And also riboflavin, vitamin B2, dramatically reduces migraine frequency and pain. So other things are coenzyme Q10 has been proven to help with migraines. And there's a couple of herbs. Feverfew has helped many, many people with migraines. And Butterbur, while it has the best research for reducing migraine pain, you need to only get the PA-free Butterbur because there are substances in Butterbur that need to be taken out for it to be safe. What about arthritis? What would you recommend? Well, again, I have a whole book on the subject called Arthritis Relief, and arthritis is all about inflammation and pain. One thing to look at is when people have arthritis, what do they do? Well, they take painkillers. And what do the painkillers do? They block a fatty acid called arachidonic acid from becoming painful prostaglandins and inflammatory leukotrienes. Well, what if we didn't eat the arachidonic acid? then we would have just the right amount in our bodies instead of vastly too much. So which foods have all this arachidonic acid? It turns out, I analyze diets, it comes from turkey, chicken, and eggs mostly. It's also found in other meats too. But those three, I gave a class at the University of Hawaii and on arthritis, and the first week I'd ask people, who wants to try eating no turkey, chicken, or eggs for one week until the next class. Those people came back and universally said that they were walking further, sleeping better, had less pain. In other words, it's a lot like taking aspirin or Advil or Tylenol to block that. What about reversing diabetes? What do you recommend? Well, I think that Brenda Davis's study on diabetes in the Marshall Island was the most successful one I know. I know Neil Barnard's done some good studies, too. And they used a whole food, plant-based diet, and they, of course, they didn't want people to eat junk food, which would be laden with sugar. They also had a very low saturated fat, very wisely, because saturated fat not only reduces the number of insulin receptors, you know, normal American saturated fat, or paleo or Atkins or bulletproof saturated fat levels, (laughs) would reduce the number of insulin receptors to half of their normal number and reduce the ability to clear the blood. Also, the saturated fat, I'm now learning, increases glucagon, which means that the liver is making sugar all day and all night to increase blood sugar levels. So her study did that. They used beans at two meals per day. They used a lot of vegetables. They added some nuts and seeds, but only a reasonable amount. They kept the omega-3s up with flaxseed, chia, and other other seeds that they added to the diet. So it was a whole food plant-based diet and the people, their diabetes reversed. Can these people, can you recommend people eat meat at all or just kind of cut it out of our diets? Well, I think that one of the best studies on low levels of meat in the diet was called the monk study. And this was done in China, and they had a group of monks who were all vegetarian, vegan, really. They ate no animal products of any kind. But one part of the group ate meat only on Sundays, and the other group never ate meat. They were still able to discern danger changes in the arteries from just one meal a week of meat. Isn't that amazing that that small amount would still have an effect? Wow. Yeah, I think Bill Grant did a study on prevention of uh, Alzheimer's, and he found meat eating to be uh, one of the main risk factors, and that's excluding the fact that, well, meat eaters might eat fewer vegetables. 
Yeah, of course, there is that effect. Uh, I think one of the reasons why sometimes uh, beans or soy products are found to be so effective is that if you're eating tofu at a meal, you might not be eating pork or beef. And so you get the advantage of all the good things in the beans plus the advantage of not getting all the excesses in the meat. Uh, yes, I think that the healthiest diet would not include meat. What we do with people in the clinic is we talk to them about which meats they like. If they like lunch meat, we suggest that they try tofurkey, hickory smoked tofurkey, which is a lunch meat made without meat. And if they like it, all of a sudden their lunch no longer contributes to their saturated fats. There are substitute uh, hot dogs and burgers and chicken and all kinds of things out there that are healthier than meat. They may, may not be perfectly whole and natural, but they're a big step up and they allow people to say, what are we having for dinner? You know, we're having hot dogs, but they're hot dogs that don't hurt you. Aren't they highly processed? Yes, they're processed. It's true. Uh, but the difference in health damage between a real hot dog, uh, I was shocked when I heard, uh, read a study that showed that childhood leukemia was increased nine times in the children who ate hot dogs. This is really shocking. You don't hear a 900% increase hardly wow. ever in a study. Yeah. So there, you know, the, the real hot dogs are really dangerous, study after study, I, all the time. However, the other ones are not so dangerous. They may not be increasing your health at as quite as fast a rate as if you ate you know, whole things. But still, they're pretty whole. And you can look around, and we found the healthiest and tastiest ones to recommend to people. And what do you recommend about bread? Supposing you love toast. Well, toast will get the glycosylated end products, wouldn't it? Actually, uh, not usually. Acrylamides can form if you, on carbohydrates, it's acrylamides that form under high heat and with um, browning and blackening of the toast. If you just cook your toast to a golden brown, they don't tend to form much. And uh, but AGEs will not form in the presence of water, and there's enough water in bread to stop their formation. So we have that on our side. Of course, most bread is highly processed, full of sugar, white flour. Even if it says wheat or multigrain on the front of the label, you turn it over, and the first ingredient is usually wheat flour, which a lot of people mistake for being whole wheat flour, but it's not. Wheat flour is defined as white flour. Yeah, and I understand the glycemic index of uh, whole wheat bread is higher than the glycemic index of white bread, which is higher than the glycemic index of a Snickers bar, and the non-gluten breads are even higher than all of those, and the glycemic index, which relates to the amount of sugar load we get, is something that's not particularly healthy. Yes, the glycemic index is a, a rather old and clumsy way of measuring how sugar gets into the blood. I much prefer the glycemic load index because yes, that that's takes better. into account how much sugar is in the bread in the first place as well as how fast it gets into the arteries. So we want to use the glycemic load, in which case you get a better read. It's very hard to find a really good bread. And, in fact, I hadn't been eating bread for maybe the last year or two, and I finally broke down and got some whole grain bread and boy it's a lot of fun isn't it yes sure is <laughs> so <laughs> what would you recommend diet wise for the average person uh you know i mean what would your recommendations be well first of all eat some fruit for a snack a lot of times we're eating not because we're hungry but because we're tired and we need a little perk up. So when you need a little perk up, if you can have a little bag of cut up apples or a bag of berries and nuts or some kind of fruit, some bananas even are simple, have some fruit around at all times for those snack moments. That'll really increase your antioxidants to protect your brain and your body. And it won't do you any problems, even diabetics. When I look at glycemic load for fruits, most fruits are pretty safe. You know, something like bananas might be too, too much sugar and too fast to increase the blood sugar. But all the berries are safe and things like plums and peaches are, are really quite safe too. Um, and then we're coming to a we're coming to a close in like four minutes. So can you summarize the main points you'd like to make, and then tell people about your website and how to get a hold of you? 
Okay, Susan, thank you so much. Uh, eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Include beans of any kind in your diet as the hearty food to satisfy your stomach. Include some nuts and seeds so you're not like the 93% of Americans who don't get enough vitamin E. And try for unprocessed food as much as possible. I know junk food is very attractive, but you try to avoid it by having healthier snacks available. My website is pretty much like my name, drsteveblake.com, and uh, my email is steve at drsteveblake.com. I'd love to hear your questions and comments. Great. So the audience can contact you for further questions. Sure. I love chatting with people about health and nutrition and how powerful it is in relieving our problems. Uh Okay, uh, any other recommendations? Uh, you know, you know, how would you like to finish out the hour? Well, I would do just want to mention that nutrition doesn't work by itself. We all need to get moving, too. So at your own capability levels, I would encourage everyone listening and myself and you, Susan, to go <laughs> ahead and get some exercise and some fitness whenever we can. And what kind of fitness would you recommend? Well, it's whatever you'll do is the best one. Uh, for me, I love to run, so that's what I do. Uh, some people like to swim or bicycle or bounce on a trampoline or dance. Whatever you want to do, that's the one you should do because that's the one that will keep you healthy. And, of course, exercise is one of the greatest stress relievers. And stress relief is another wonderful thing that, Susan, I know you work with people and help them to understand their stresses and help them to relax. And that's a big part of health, too. And Dr. Permuter, pardon me, Permuter had mentioned that exercise is the biggest thing you can do to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Exercise is, of course, very helpful with vascular dementia, but can't do a thing for Alzheimer's disease because there's no way it can help with the Alzheimer's plaques. I think that nutrition is more important than exercise, but hey, let's do them both. And that's good, good sleep and minimize our stress as well. Good sleep is crucial, for sure, and minimizing stress is difficult in our society, but uh, let's do the best we can. Okay, and aren't the risk factors for cardiovascular disease approximately the same risk factors for dementia? They are similar, yes. Um, I, I have a book on strokes, one on heart attacks, and one on Alzheimer's disease, and there are slightly different approaches to each one, although there are many similarities. That diet could work on any of them. A whole food plant diet would work on help, to help any of these diseases. Well, we're coming to a close now. So, Steve, I would like to thank you and your rooster for uh, chirping in. And to our audience, I would like to say uh, do your own research, uh, look at different approaches, uh, consult with your medical practitioner and other practitioners, and go be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.